Yeah, I can pretend I'm getting better at JavaScript. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, SAS, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash webstore. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 66 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hi there. And Merrick Christensen. Hey, guys. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about, it, it, I think it's kind of a blend of making the transition from uh, one primary language to JavaScript. It usually happens through web development and, uh, you know, some of the mistakes that people make when their primary language is not JavaScript. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Merrick, you're kind of the expert guy that I always look at and go, man, he's awesome at JavaScript. So I'm wondering, did you start out in JavaScript or did you come in from somewhere else? Oh, that's that's really nice of you, man. Uh, I, I actually started out with ActionScript. <laughs> I, I really loved Flash developments, but it's kind of the same thing, really. I mean, they're both based off of ECMAScript. Um, so I guess you could say I've always done JavaScript. So ActionScript is like nearly identical to JavaScript. Well, not anymore. ActionScript three developed classes and uh, they typed it and they they did some interesting things to make it more of a full featured language. It's got more akin to Dart than JavaScript now, I think. But I ended up getting into JavaScript when I was like seventeen or so. I I came across the MooTools framework, and ever since then, it's been all JavaScript all the time. You're so, pretty young, wasn't that last year? <laughs> close, close. No, about about six years, five years of JavaScript. So nice. you're also, though, like a real student of languages. You love studying other languages. I love programming languages, yeah. So you're, I think you're a pretty funny, or, or sorry, not necessarily unique, because I think there's a lot of like people that are taking the same path as you nowadays, but it's pretty unique for people. Nobody with 10 years of experience has, has done this, but... Learning JavaScript first, and then moving to or learning other languages—that's <laughs> a pretty unique sure. path. Yeah, that's true. I I've always wanted to build things for the web. So I, at first, I was Flash because you used to couldn't do the things you can do with JavaScript now that you could do with Flash. So whatever building rich experiences on the web is is what I've kind of been interested in. But lately, I've been, I guess, broadening my horizon into things that other people are leaving like backend and compile languages and things like that. Right. Yeah, and then Joe, you worked for Captain Picard in the Enterprise, right? You did. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> that's a that's a funny way to put that. <laughs> yeah, I worked for Bill Gates. Oh, uh, yeah. Captain Picard in the Enterprise. That's amazing. Yeah. So in layman's terms, Joe came from .net. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was one of the Bill Gates sheep. Although I never really considered myself to be a sheep. Like, I, I have said this before, and I do think that there's a problem that too many .NET developers don't realize that there are, you can do .NET and there are, but you don't have to do like 100% of what Microsoft shows down your throat and still be a .NET developer. A while ago, there was this movement called alt.net, alt.net, and it really died, but I always kind of felt like I was, that was really in line with how I felt, right? Like there were all the things that Microsoft did well, I loved, but I was really open to the fact that they didn't do everything well. And not 100% of .NET developers are like that. Uh, I don't know what the percentages are, but I know that there are developers out there that just accept what Microsoft says and that there are developers out there that realize that there are other alternatives for different pieces, you know, other technologies that work great that aren't built by Microsoft that still work well with Microsoft. And Microsoft as a company, thankfully, is starting to admit that and really embrace, you know, they've embraced Node really well. They're embracing web technologies that they don't really own. So I think it's it's nice to see Microsoft responding to that. Yeah, I've, I've met some hardcore um, .NET developers that I swear when they wake up, the the boot song from windows plays in their head or something <laughs> but uh, and and you know you try and talk talk to them about anything else and it, they they always hark back to the the custom controls that microsoft gives you for web and other development and they have no idea that what it really boils down to so that it works on the browser is that it's a control that's built in javascript that has some hook to the back end yeah and i think in my career i've seen that that's a slightly slight minority that most people are more aware of, but I think it's helpful when people point out the fact and help others to know that you can blend in other stuff. So, and there's, there's a lot of great Microsoft developers out there that understand how wide the world is. Mm -hmm. And I think I was one of those guys. I, I love that anytime somebody tells me they're using knockout, I could be like, Oh, so you got a .NET backend? And they'll be like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, but my biggest issues with .NET really come down to the fact that you have to pay through the nose in order to get a Windows server and pay through the nose to get um, Visual Studio and stuff. And uh, other than that, I mean, the tools are fine, the server's fine, the OS is fine, you know. But yeah, I, I, I really have a, I really have problems coughing up that kind of money. Those licensing fees never bothered me. Because <laughs> somebody else paid them, right? Yeah, exactly. Plus, there's open alternatives, right? Isn't there? Yeah. Like, yeah. What is it? The I don't know. There's there's some C sharp. There's mono. Mono. That's it. And I, I've I've said this many times when people have brought that up to defend Microsoft because I do think that they do lots of good stuff. But by the time you get to any reasonably sized project, the tiny ones, it's different. But for any reasonably sized project, the size licensing fees are you know such a small percentage. It's kind of like buying a car because of the tires, oh, you know, mm -hmm. choosing the car based on the brand of tires. I got to have Toyo tires, so I've got to buy this particular brand of car, you know? My problem is is the that if I want to change my color scheme, I'm kind of stuck using Visual <laughs> Studio. Hey, the new the new one, I think, comes with four color schemes. Four color schemes? Yeah. Oh, oh, Woohoo! Like, Touche. No, I think the new one is, got, is a bit better. I haven't actually used 2012, but I think it's a little bit better, and they've responded to the fact that there's so many people out there that, live and die by whether or not it's sure. cream or, you know, two uh, pixel, two uh, sure. shades lighter than cream. So, mm -hmm. so Joe, what, what misconceptions need to be shattered to move from full-time C-sharp to JavaScript? So, wow, that's a big question. 
So I made a pretty typical transition, right? I started doing full-time C-sharp, and then we were doing web, and we didn't do any JavaScript, and all the JavaScript that we had was what Microsoft put down there. And then I slowly did more and more JavaScript to make my pages do more and more. And then one day I thought, I just like doing web stuff, I'm going to do full JavaScript. So the misconceptions that I had as I moved to JavaScript, one of them was that JavaScript was a garbage language. I think that was my first misconception, which is kind of an opinionated thing. I mean, sometimes even I'll say that, being a full-time JavaScript developer. <laughs> like, we've said that before. The best thing about JavaScript is the fact that it's so versatile, you can plug the terrible holes in it. Yeah. But I think that was the first misconception that was that it was a pain in the butt to learn and that it was a garbage language and, you know, C-sharp is so nice and neat and orderly and it fits into these little square boxes and JavaScript doesn't. And so I think that was my first misconception I had to get over was just the language of JavaScript, that it was actually approachable. And once I just forced myself, like I had this page that I just could not do with Postbacks, which was the Microsoft way. And so I had to do full JavaScript. And so I just had to, I had to learn JavaScript for real. It was no more 20 lines of JavaScript on the page. It was actually, you know, like several hundred lines. Once I forced myself to do that, all of a sudden I realized, hey, this is a pretty approachable language and pretty easy to learn. Hmm. And I, I could really get some stuff done. Yeah. But I know that you've seen this a lot. People come from another language and they don't do idiomatic JavaScript, right? Yeah, well, one thing that's really frustrating <laughs> one thing that's really frustrated me as someone who's been in the JavaScript world for a long time is seeing people act like JavaScript had nothing structured or orderly at all until Angular was invented. I've heard that so many times now, and I think it's in the long run, it's going to be really good for JavaScript to get more developers into the scene. But I've seen so many people be like, oh, yeah, I couldn't test JavaScript until Angular came around. And it's oh, like, wow. it's like, that's a, you know, or like JavaScript had no structure before Angular came around, et cetera. And, right. and I'm glad that Angular made it more approachable for those people. But, but sometimes that can be super frustrating for me. Well, I heard people say the same thing about jQuery or about yes. prototype, or, right. you know, pick your favorite poison, you know. I've, I've heard people say it about Require.js. I just couldn't deal with it until I had modules, um, you know. Yeah, it's true. And it's, it's so interesting how, how just certain tools make things seem, so or, or make things more approachable. That's a, great, that's a great misconception that can come to those who move to JavaScript, is that without some big, huge tool in place that JavaScript can have no structure or, you yeah. know, can't, can't be X, can't be tested, yeah. can't be structured, you know, can't be ordered, whatever. So well, before we go too far, Chuck, I was hoping you would do the same thing that I did and kind of talk about your background and maybe name some misconceptions that you've seen as you've moved into the JavaScript world. Okay. So, man, I got, I got started programming... Uh, in college, we did some Java, but I didn't really do anything with web stuff until I was working at Mosey, and uh, I was working with them. I was running their tech support department, actually, and we were building a um, kind of a tech support portal, and that's how I got into Ruby and Rails and and, um, and web stuff. And interestingly enough, um, Rails, I don't know if it still has it because I never use it because it was pain. But they used to have this thing called RJS, which was kind of a, a Ruby-esque uh, way of writing JavaScript. Huh. Uh, and it wasn't JavaScript proper. It was actually more Ruby. And uh, the, it also used to have a whole bunch of built-in stuff for um, 
for actually doing all the Ajax calls for you. So you would just tell it remote true and it would handle it all for you. But I've moved away from that as well. Um, mainly because I like to have the control and a lot of times I don't just need it to post back to the, um, back to the back end. I actually need it to do something with a response or things like that, which is where RJS was supposed to come in. Um, but anyway, so a lot of people for a long time spent a lot of time in Ruby and Rails trying to abstract away JavaScript. And I think eventually it just got to the point where people started using things like jQuery and realized that jQuery would let them do most of the common things that they wanted to do without too much trouble. And that, that's kind of how I moved into things. Um, my first Rails contract, we were using Prototype.js and uh, Scriptaculous. And then the next project, we were using jQuery. And uh, from there, you know, I just kind of picked things up and started writing my own JavaScript where I needed it. And for the most part, if you come from like a C programming background or anything like that, the syntax is pretty straightforward. And so if most of what you're writing is procedural, and that's really what I was doing, was writing procedural JavaScript, I wasn't really taking advantage of eventing or anything like that. It was pretty simple. And I didn't really have a big problem with the language. But I have a lot, I've heard a lot of people talk about JavaScript and they're just like, it's kind of the unsavory portion of their application. And I, I kind of see it from from the standpoint of, you know, about the 10th time you get dinged because you didn't put a semicolon in or you forgot to add this curly braces because Ruby doesn't have them or doesn't use them that way. You kind of get frustrated. But, uh, you know, you get used to it. You get used to the evented model and uh, you start to realize that there's a lot of power on the front end. And that's kind of how I moved into it was was doing that. And then the other thing that really pushed me ahead was when I started attending the users group. So the Utah JS users group that we all are a part of um, made a big difference. Cause then I could go and talk to other people who were interested in JavaScript and learn some of the other idioms that surround it. But uh, I'm still not full-time JavaScript. Um, I've only had one project that was a hundred percent JavaScript. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to using more. I actually have been playing with node quite a bit lately. So, so Go ahead. I was going to say, here's a question for you, and this this isn't me trolling. It really isn't. It seems like the Rails framework, since its conception all the way up to even today and going forward, do everything they can to avoid JavaScript. Uh, I, think, I think that's partially true. Um, I don't think it's completely true, but I, I think they try and provide alternatives. I mean, a lot of it is colored by David Heinemeyer Hansen and his opinions of what should be done and how. Yeah. Like, so, but yeah, I mean, you have plugins that pull in the JavaScript libraries and put them in place for you, so you don't even have to do that part. Or like the way when you post, it'll send back JavaScript to execute. So yeah. you could potentially be downloading the same JavaScript over and over again. Uh, well, I guess you cache it, but uh, or or like Turbo Links or how they make CoffeeScript the default. Um, yeah, all of those things, and and yes, that's very that's very Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft is that way to the nth degree. They send out all this JavaScript and you never, it was all this crazy quantities of JavaScript that would just, so that you don't, they were trying as hard as possible to keep you from doing any JavaScript. What they would really, the, the meaning was having to do any JavaScript, but really what they were doing was insulating you from power that you could get. And so you do things yeah. in a dumb way. They do these terrible, horrible posts. Well, it's, it's fine for the common case, but when you start to scale your app up, then it really starts to 
uh, snowball into a I would really say bad the, idea. The simple case, not the common case. Yeah, the I think there's case. way too many times yeah, when the simple case. a server developer with a good server technology like .NET, like Rails, will avoid doing something that should be done in JavaScript because they don't have to. They can kind of avoid it and therefore do something that's far less effective for the users and for the application. It's what? so funny because I, I, I fall into the trap on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, it could be done on the server, but I'm like, ah, I'll just do it on the client. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I do that sometimes. I mean, it really depends, though. And I think it's interesting what uh, what Joe said in the sense that, you know, what what's best or most powerful for the user, a lot of times I'll opt for the front end or the back end based on how easy it is for me to build it there. Right. And so I, I have more control on the front end, so it's much easier for me to build there, so I'll do it. And other times, you know, it's I have more control or I have... I have more of what I need on the back end to just make it happen, and so I'll do it there. And sometimes you got to consider cost. I do believe that JavaScript development in general is a lot more expensive than server-side web development. It is. And so, but I'm excited because I feel like the industry is steadily closing that gap. The more JavaScript framing smart work move, the more we get new versions of JavaScript. The easier it becomes to test. Yep. And I really feel like in the next five to six years, we'll see the that gap gets so close that it just makes so much sense to do a lot more job at front-end development. Yes and no. And this is one of the fundamental issues with JavaScript, in my opinion, is the fact that, uh, in general, we have to maintain backward compatibility to these browsers that were written 10 to 15 years ago. Right. And so, I mean, the language, yes, it can move forward, and yes, it can give us powerful constructs for working around some of the issues that some of these browsers have, but it still has to give away for the older browsers to do the thing. But, and, but here's the thing. With ECMAScript 6 becoming something like a transpilation target, like they want people to compile to ECMAScript 6, right. I think we as developers are going to write more to an abstraction of what the browsers run rather than directly to the grain of the browsers. So we might all be writing you know, ES6, and that would transpile as much as you know possible to ECMAScript five or ECMAScript three. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think at some point the tooling will catch up to a point where, for example, when you write uh, Java, you are able to run on all sorts of platforms because you have this JVM. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to see something similar with JavaScript because uh, you're going to write the high-level language, and you'll have some sort of compilation target that'll run on these older browsers. Yeah, so are you talking about having some kind of library that fills the gaps and provides the APIs, or are you talking about actually having it uh, like compile ES6 to ES3? I'm talking like actual compilation. Huh, that'd be interesting. I guess my question then becomes, how do you manage that? Because then the browser has to be aware to know which version of the library to pull, which is compatible with it. With it. So. Yeah, that's true. That's 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 solvable though. That's easy. It is, but it's it's still an extra step, and and that's the thing. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we've been we've been writing to abstraction layers that take away all that pain for years with things like JavaScript or jQuery or prototype yep. or what have you, because they they know the quirks of the browsers and so they just uh you know they program around them so they do browser detection or whatever they have to do find yeah. a common way to do it and then they just take care of it so when i make an ajax call or 
I manipulate something in the DOM or I do one of these other things that the library provides for, you know, it knows, well, if I'm running in IE6, then I need to work around it this way. And if I'm running in Opera, then I need to do it this other way. Yeah. I'd like to generalize that and say, I feel like smart people are going to solve a lot of problems and just make things a lot easier. You know, the front end is the web of the web is the wild west. There's so many unsolved problems to solve. And as those problems get solved, it's just going to make development on the front end cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, but but ultimately, if you're if you're writing at low level JavaScript, and you're doing specific things that work differently in the the browsers, um, you know, or work certain ways in older browsers that don't work the same way in newer browsers, you know, we still have to maintain that backward compatibility unless we want to break the functionality for those older browsers. Right. Right. I I do think though that you could you could backwards. I think you could transpile a lot. I mean, there's some features that you can't, like, you just can't get tail call optimization. Well, you maybe you'd be able to do it through, like, a series of complex for loops. Right. But there's some features in the language you just are going to have a real hard time. But let's be honest. Let alone impossible time. All we're talking about here is IE. That's really what we're talking about here. No, there's, there's no, not bugs entirely. in Firefox. Yeah, there's bugs, but... It's been uh, it's been evergreen Chrome, for a while. All these things, and they're getting more and more evergreen. The old the ver number of people running a non evergreen version of Chrome is tiny. IE is a big culprit, but the truth is the ubiquity of the web creates fragmentation in the platform. Right, and that's a good thing. Yes, because you get the ubiquity, but consequently, you're writing the multiple platforms. So uh -huh. I think it's I think this is a JavaScript problem. I don't think this is an IE problem. I think IE is the biggest culprit of it because they fragment further than everyone else. But I don't think it's fair to... That's true. But I, but my point was, IE is our biggest culprit. And as time goes by, they're getting better. And I hope someday they're going to figure out and make a decision that they're going to make versions of IE that aren't dependent on the OS. Yeah. And so, you know, they say that IE is evergreen. Well, it's only evergreen so long as you stay on the latest OS. Once you s stop and you're on an old OS, your version at some point is going to be capped. Right? That's what they're doing right now. And I think they're going to figure that, they're going to change that point. I hope they change that policy at some point. We'll have a truly evergreen IE. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is that with most of these browsers, you get kind of the incremental updates. So, you know, I've got Firefox on here and I use it just often enough so that every time I fire it up, it says there's a new version, which is, you know, every month or so. Chrome just updates itself. I don't even pay any attention because it just does it automatically and I don't even see it. Right. Um, you know, and so in a lot of these cases, you know, since it since it just handles that, you don't have to worry about it. And that's the other issue that I really have with Internet Explorer is it's like you get IE10 or whatever, and you get like these minor patches to it, but you're you're stuck on the main engine for it until they come out with a new major, super major update. Isn't that because it's integrated into the OS? Kind of. It's kind of integrated into the OS. I'm not. I, I'm not sure how deep it goes, but it seems like. Some things it does are things that it works like an independent application, and some things it does, it seems yeah. like it ties back into a lot of other things. So I don't know. Yeah. All I'm well, saying is we could be asking a lot of Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you we know, don't I, know their code base, right? But Right. And I'd like to move back. To, I'd like to switch and move back to the uh, whole migrating to JavaScript since we've definitely um, segued here into browsers and the problems. But move back into as you're moving to JavaScript. Like, what are misconceptions? What are great ways to move to JavaScript? What are misconceptions? I think 
perceptions are that JavaScript is unbearable without certain libraries or tools. Yeah, that's definitely a big misconception. Because because I totally agree that abstracting away the platform is nice with things like jQuery, but I think people really cripple themselves by not actually trying to understand the language itself. Right. Uh, and reading that book or listening to that episode with Dave Herman, Effective JS, I think gives like a wonderful point of view of like some of the interesting things you can do with JavaScript as a language. Right. That'll even even if you're just writing to jQuery all the time, it'll make your jQuery life better. Yeah, yeah. and and I highly recommend to people to go read it. And then when you're done reading it, go read it. Yeah. <laughs> it was an excellent That's book. Truth. It really was. So yeah. I feel like my migration to JavaScript, if I could do it over again to make it more effective, the things that I would have done is spend more time right up first learning how to structure my JavaScript code because the misconception that JavaScript can't be structured is definitely wrong, but there is it is true that if you don't spend time structuring your JavaScript code, then you end up with crappy code. And that's easier to do in JavaScript than a lot of languages because it, it's harder to just, it's, it is harder to structure your code. They don't give you very good structures, even building a class up. Well, the language itself doesn't have any code sharing mechanisms right. yet. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that... Uh, so. In languages like Ruby or Objective C or some of these others that I've been playing with, you know, they they give you very strong idioms Stru structures. Yes, in the language that really give you a way to put your code together. And if you do it the other way, you can. But once you once you move into classes or once you move into some of these other structures, you really figure out fast that this is a much easier way to do this, and it's much easier to reason about. And yeah, Java JavaScript just it doesn't have those strong, I, I don't know if I want to call them opinions with the structures that it gives you, but the structures are so flexible that it doesn't necessarily always say, do it this way. Yeah, right. you could write a fully object-oriented system with JavaScript with ease. Well, you'd have to be good at it. or You'd have to understand the language, right? Uh, or prototypes, at least. Yeah. Um, but, but you're right. Like It's less obvious to people. Well, and I have to say that things like Backbone, um, I haven't really had a chance to play with Angular. Sorry, Joe. But uh, they were a big win. I mean, jQuery itself was a big win in the sense that it, it kind of gave me some ways of structuring, you know, because they have some patterns that they show you when you start using it. And then Backbone really gave me a good way of handling that. And again, it's because they provided the structures that I needed to organize my logic. Yeah. I mean, JavaScript is trying to mitigate that problem. They're actually going to add class semantics. I mean, it's still prototype, prototypal inheritance, but they're adding like a class keyword to ECMAScript 6 to try and make that more obvious to people coming from other languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that'll be, that'll be a big help for sure. One yeah. other thing that I've seen a lot of people moving to with Node.js is that they found that certain areas of their application, like chat rooms or um, workflow management or things like that, they work really, really well with an evented system like Node. And so what I've seen is that um, people have written J JSON uh, APIs into Node or into a Node application, and they pass it stuff, and then it does its work in an evented fashion, and when it's done, it spits it back out. And so I've, I've seen some stuff go on like that where, you know, they kind of take a hybrid approach. And so part of their applications in Rails or Sinatra and part of their applications in Node.js. Interesting. So that's another transition point on the back end that, yeah, that has some payoffs. 
Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. What about you, Chuck? When you were, you know, as you've looked over your move to JavaScript, how would you do it differently if you could do it over again? For the most part, I think what I would do is just find a way to really learn the core uh, concepts behind JavaScript. Um, you know, I kind of got into it from uh, I need to solve this little problem on my web page. And so I'd go look up some code and copy it over, you know, go look something up on jQuery.org and copy it over. And I, I really wish that I had understood deep down what was going on because I think I could really have uh, more powerfully used the, the features around the language itself. So I agree with that, but I do think that oftentimes when you tell people that it's, and, and this is true even after having been in JavaScript for a long time, JavaScript is a deep language with a lot of deep holes to go down and learn. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that's true, but I would say that there's a few, there's a, you know, a handful of things that you def should definitely learn and learn those and then worry about learning the other things later. Right. Yes. And so I think that if it was me and I was making that list, I would say that closures, understanding closures, understanding um, hoisting and context are probably the three big things that you should learn. I don't even think that... I'd take hoisting out. Really? Oh, yeah. Closures, scoping. Scoping. Maybe scoping's better than hoisting because hoisting and scoping are... What I'm, when I say hoisting, what I really mean is like scoping and understanding where variables start and end. Sure. So, yeah. Closures, scoping, and context. I don't, I don't even think that understanding the prototypes inheritance system is that important when you're doing when you're first getting into JavaScript. That gets becomes like a, important as a second level for me. I think I think if I could do it all over again, I would definitely learn about testing sooner and test driving code. Awesome. That was I can't believe you said that before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a byproduct of working with Joe. But like <laughs> test driving code made a huge difference in terms of just the type of JS I write. So yeah. Joe, when are you going to have him brainwashed into paying us? True <laughs> <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's another great one. Is not being afraid of testing JavaScript. That's another either misconception or thing that should be learned because it's code. You should be testing it. it. In fact, I think it's more important to test JavaScript than it is to test your server side code because it's so much easier to go wrong in JavaScript. It's it's a fast, free, loose language. Mm -hmm. So. And there's a lot that goes on under the hoods that's hard to hard to understand, especially when you're first getting into it. It's so much more important to test your JavaScript. Yeah. One other thing that I wish I had time to, to learn a little bit more about is to go and learn some of these other languages that transpile into JavaScript. So um, I've done quite a bit with CoffeeScript, no surprise there. Um, but go and learn like TypeScript and Dart and some of these other languages and not just learn them for the sake of understanding the languages, but understand what they're really trying to solve in JavaScript. So, so what the problems that they see in JavaScript are and why they're giving you this other alternative to do that, uh, to, to write in those languages and, the, and then transpile it down to JavaScript and then just understand why those are weaknesses or not of uh, JavaScript itself. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. What other common mistakes might people make as they move to JavaScript? Not testing being a big one. I, I think a lot of times people are afraid to just deviate off of the the common path. So they they use the, the common functions out of 
jQuery or the, they use the common functions out of whatever MVC framework they're using. But they're they're kind of afraid to do more than just that and some basic procedural stuff instead of really looking at, okay, what does it mean to put an event on this and why would it help me? Right. I'd say that's my number one com- most common mistake I would list is just doing jQuery and then thinking that everything is jQuery is JavaScript and only thinking in JavaScript in terms of jQuery. Mm-hmm. Learning JavaScript through jQuery, if that's how you learn JavaScript, you definitely need to take a step back and learn the language a little bit bigger and make j- jQuery just a, a piece of your JavaScript. Structure your JavaScript code and then have your jQuery just be one little piece of that and not have jQuery be your JavaScript. And look, at, I, I, I've mentioned before, I worked at a company and this worked fairly well for them. But everything that they did in JavaScript was actually a jQuery plugin. Everything that they did, that they did, and it worked out. It worked out just fine for them. But I think they could have actually got, got a lot more advantages if they had come up with a structure that was JavaScript, where and jQuery was just mixed into that. Sure. So that would be one of my biggest mistakes: is thinking that jQuery and how jQuery does things is really how JavaScript does it. Another. Potential mistake is, and I'm actually on the fence about this one, but idiomatic JavaScript, right? In uh, lots of anonymous inline functions, lots of closures. I had a conversation with somebody about, you know, is a closure a, a code smell, right? I, I had recently learned that C Sharp supports closures, and I, I had known it supports basically this uh, feature of lambdas for a long time, but you never closed over variables in C-sharp. I, I never had, and none of the code that I'd ever looked at had ever closed over a variable, right? And so when I found out that in C-sharp, you could actually close over a variable identically to the way you do it in JavaScript, I was like astounded, the fact that it, you could do that. But nobody does it in C-sharp, and I think the big reason is because in C-sharp, your context is fixed for functions, where in JavaScript, it's not, so people close over variables. Well, because in JavaScript, that's all you have to, to scope things. Yeah. So everything's yeah. a global, or are you... Yeah, or you, you can, yeah, that's the only way to get it in there is close it over. So, but is a, is a closure a, a code smell? Because you actually, if you close over a variable, you're coupling your function implementation of that variable. And there's no clear declaration of that. You'd have to actually look inside the body of the function to see, hey, I'm referencing this variable that's declared outside of it, right? So is that a code smell? And so that's kind of idiomatic JavaScript to close over things all the time. When there are ways to get around that, you can, you can bind a functionification to the value of a variable and then invoke, invoke the function that way. So there are ways to get around it. So I'm kind of on the fence about certain pieces of idiomatic JavaScript, but I definitely think that if you're coming from a server-side language, trying to write JavaScript like whatever server-side language you're familiar with is a mistake. You should learn to write JavaScript as JavaScript. Yeah, I think it's interesting you brought that up. Ruby also has closures in blocks, procs, and lambdas. They're all closures. Oh, really? Yep. And you can close over variables, and it'll hold the value within the, the invocation of the function? Yep, unless you overwrite it as a local variable or parameter. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't know that you could do that in C-sharp until I actually tried it, just because it's just not done. Nobody does it in C-sharp. Yep. All right. Well, I think we're running out of time. Um, are there any other things that you want to bring up to kind of mention on the show before we end it? Nope. I just want to say the word testing one more time. now i'm gonna go crawl in a hole with my guilty conscience you guys can do pics i don't test my javascript as often as i have all right well let's do the pics um merrick what are your picks so i have a pick 
that is probably going to be an unpopular one because everyone loves to make fun of this, but I I want to pick Dart, the language, and uh, the tools and libraries that they're creating. I think if you looked at Dart at first and you're like, ah, oh, man, this thing sucks, you got to give it a second look. Uh, they're adding some really interesting things like like bindings directly into the language, you, or, well, using libraries, but bindings with observables, kind of like you find in Angular or Ember. MDV, the model-driven views, the, the shadow DOM, they have an import structure, so you can import code, <laughs> like a module system. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. They're doing some interesting things, and that's uh, dartlang.org. And then the other thing that I wanted to pick is the ECMAScript 6 wiki. It's awesome. There's just all sorts of great information about the upcoming stuff of JavaScript. And I think the best entry point for that is this ES6 plan. So if you found it kind of impenetrable, I think that's the best page to start with. So those are my picks. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? Um, so my first pick is going to be the TV show Defiance. I actually just, I've been DVRing it up, and I think the season's over. And I have no idea if it's being canceled or not, and I hope it's not. But I actually just watched the first two episodes of it and really, really liked it. And so it was a, it was a cool show. It's no uh, Firefly, but it's uh, it, I really enjoyed it. It's a cool show, a cool sci-fi show. Speaking of which, Under the Dome just started. I'm interested to watch that one. Um, I'm also going to pick America's Got Talent. We watch that as, our, as a family every week. And it's just so cool seeing these crazy things that happen. Somebody steps on stage and dressed like a, a homeless bum and sings better than Pavarotti or can juggle better than the best jugglers in the world. It's just so cool to see these crazy things happen and you just sit there and go, holy crap, I can't believe that happened. Like this last episode we just watched, there was a woman on a like a, a six-foot tri- uh, unicycle and she was riding the unicycle with one leg and with the other leg she was kicking bowls onto another bowl that was on top of her head, like, you know, salad bowls. Oh, jeez. She was kicking them. She had like three of them stacked up on her leg and she kicked all three and all of them fell all together onto this bowl in her head. It was unbelievable. Like, how can a the human how could a human do that? And what would ever make you think you'd want to learn that? So <laughs> I was gonna say, how do you figure out you got that talent? <laughs> yeah. It was unbelievable. And then my last pick is gonna be esports, specifically StarCraft two esports. I love watching StarCraft two two tournaments. And I feel like it's just like every other sport, you don't have to be you don't have to actually play to enjoy the sport. I think understanding it is definitely important, but you can understand it by watching. But it is an absolutely amazing sport to watch. I love watching the StarCraft II tournaments and watching the best players in the world compete and play and you know, learning new underdogs and then the dominant forces. that You, you want to see the underdog beat this guy who's been winning every Goshu tournament. All the Koreans. Yeah, the yeah. Koreans that dominate the world. I just I love watching StarCraft II esports. So that's going to be my third pick and final pick. Awesome. Well, as far as TV shows go, I've actually been watching Continuum, which is on the Sci-Fi Channel with uh, Defiance. I keep seeing commercials for Defiance, so I'm assuming it's still running. So, yeah, I, I really like that. I've also been watching Fringe with my wife, and uh, we just finished Season 4, so I, I'm now looking at ways to get Season 5. One, another pick that I have is Clean My Mac, which is an application for the Mac. And basically, the reason that I have it is I bought, a, I think it's a 256-gig uh, solid-state drive that I run my OS off of. 
makes it boot a little bit faster and things, but I tend to fill it up. <laughs> and so clean my Mac will go and identify like large files that you ought to look at cleaning up off of your um, Mac. And it actually cleans up some of the caches that build up on your machine and deletes old versions of um, applications and things like that. It's really, really good. Um, I usually wind up cleaning up somewhere between 10 and 15 gig off of my hard drive every time I run it. So, And it's stuff that I'm not using. So those are my picks. And uh, yeah, it was a good discussion, guys. Cool. So thanks for coming. We'll catch you all next week. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks.